Welcome to a throwback edition of the Social Flight Live podcast, where we feature a special past episode that stood out from all the rest. Join our live broadcast every Tuesday evening at 8 p.m. Eastern at socialflightlive.com. Social Flight is brought to you by Aspen Avionics, Avidyne, Bose Aviation, Continental Aerospace Technologies, Lightspeed Aviation, Massimo Mighty Sat, Tempest Aero Group, and Whip Air. And now, here's your host, Jeff Simon. Good evening, everyone, and welcome to Social Flight Live. I'm Jeff Simon. We have a fantastic show for you this evening. So, so cool. Major Cameron Hillier is here from the North American Aerospace Defense Command, NORAD. So uh, we are going to learn all about the, both the background, current operations at NORAD, what's happening lately, as well as, of course, the Santa Tracker and the work that they have been doing there for so, so many years. Before we get started, just a few things. First of all, tonight's broadcast will be recorded, as always, and available on Social Flight's YouTube channel. It will also be available now directly through the Social Flight mobile app and through socialflight.com. The free mobile app is available for Apple and Android devices. And as always, be sure to get that and also check out socialflight.com because there are so, so many events out there, great opportunities to, to learn, to go to some great webinars and to see other opportunities, including safe social distancing opportunities to do fly-ins, get together, go to museums, things like that. There are many of these uh, actually happening. And I do want to point out, of course, as always, that you know we created Social Flight to Support General Aviation, and the Social Flight Live program is specifically here to support you and all of general aviation uh, because we are a very small community and it is so important to help support those businesses. So during this holiday season, if there's anything you can do to support your local FBO, your airport restaurant, pilot shops, if you're thinking about doing anything to improve your aircraft, this is the time. Uh, Do it, uh, reserve something, uh, buy something as a gift, anything that you can do to help support our industry. You may be saving someone's job. You may be making it so that another company is here with us at the end of the crisis so that we can move forward stronger than ever before with general aviation. And that really, really does matter. Uh, With that, I'd like to talk about one other quick thing, and that is that we have uh, a giveaway going as part of our Social Flights Fly to Win program. I'll uh, bring that up right now real quick. Tempest, one of Social Flight supporters, is giving away a complete prize pack. Um, So all you need to do is get the Social Flight free mobile app, just fly to any airport, check in, and you will get points. And it doesn't matter how many points you get. It just get, enters you for a drawing, uh, lets you track your flights, and makes it so that you're entered to win this prize pack. And so uh, just that's it. Another quick tip here uh, is if you would like to sub- submit questions during the show, you can do that through the Q&A feature here. Um, we will do our best to read those and then include them in the discussion. We won't be actually asking them one for one uh, to Major Hillier, but we will actually uh, be able to fit many of them into our discussion. So feel free to ask away. We'll do our best to get those uh, answered as well. And if you are watching on a mobile device, uh, sometimes you can change the size. We will be showing images as well, like we are doing now. That will change the size of what's shown on the screen. And in some cases, you can control that yourself on your device. So uh, with that, I'd like to uh, actually introduce uh, Major 
Cameron Hillier. Um, he is originally from Grand Bank, a small fishing village in southern Newfoundland, Canada. Major Cameron has uh, left his hometown for the first time at 17 to go to university in St. John's and join the military after graduation. He's been deployed to numerous regions, including Kandahar, Afghanistan, serving with the 10th Mountain Division, as well as supporting Operation Nanook, Canada's annual Arctic Sovereignty Exercise, and a variety of other operations around the world. Major Cameron Hillier has been with NORAD since 2018, supporting several NORAD responses, such as military aircraft entering Canadian and American air defense identification zones, domestic aircraft, uh, airspace violations, aircraft hijackings, and of course, tracking Santa every December 25th. Welcome, Major Hillier. Oh, thank you, and uh, thanks for having me. Well, I uh, really appreciate uh, you taking the time to join us this evening, and I'd like to start with some some background here, um, and um, uh, let's uh, take, take a look here. When we think of NORAD, we often think first of the Cheyenne Mountain Complex that's so kind of uh, iconic uh, about this. Can you um, start with a little background on the history of NORAD? I'll show some of those slides, and then we'll go kind of in and out of that. Well, NORAD began in 1958, and essentially it was just a mutual defense relationship between Canada and the United States, and both countries at that time looking at uh, the possible Soviet threat and the threat of nuclear war uh, being dropped by uh, Soviet bombers and gravity bombs. So understanding that the most likely uh, approach there would be through the north, which would be the closest point from uh, Russia to Canada and the United States for that matter. So the question is then, how do we uh, mutually assure defense of one another? And for the Americans, basically, uh, what became a, a core component is basically knowing what was up there and where when it was coming. So with that, between Canada's geography, massive geography, I, I obviously being the second largest country in the world, and America leaning in with the technology for the what was at first the distant early warning line, uh, basically to establish this line of radars along the north of Alaska through Canada uh, to basically provide uh, early warning of any possible uh, Soviet bomber threat. So that was kind of the origin of NORAD back in 1958, which has grown uh, extensively since then, and it's something that uh, we continue through today. Now, tell me a little bit about kind of the, the, the organization of it, because uh, as you mentioned, it's Obviously, uh, done. Is it only the United States and Canada, for example, that's part of NORAD? Well, for two nations, uh, for the nations in involved, yes. Uh, however, uh, I think maybe what you're trying to allude to there is is what goes into making up NORAD. Um, so, being primarily responsible for aerospace warning, aerospace control, and maritime warning missions for both Canada and the United States. Uh, the question is, what goes into actually supporting those missions? So mm. NORAD by itself is, is a command and control structure, and the assets that it has uh, allocated to it comes at the behest of the Royal Canadian Air Force, United States Air Force, the United States Coast Guard, and uh, the Air National Guard, uh, among others. So it's, it's a conglomeration of all those services that kind of lead into the command and control aspect for NORAD to execute, execute those missions on behalf of Canada and the United States. So it, essentially, if I understand you correctly, so you have uh, all different units from both countries that essentially get assigned uh, under NORAD 
as as part of uh, as part of operations. Is that a way to understand it? Uh, it's, it's it's a closer way to understanding it. Uh, it's almost a little bit, but <laughs> I'll get there slowly. Almost, <laughs> it's almost a little bit. And it's obviously something very complex, but uh, it's almost a little bit better than that. Say, for example, uh, say if the Royal Canadian Air Force allocated 50 jets to NORAD and the United States Air Force allocated 100 jets to NORAD and the Air National Guard and so on, right? Then the the great uh, flexibility for NORAD is that once those uh, assets are assigned, then they're assigned in a command and control perspective. So in other words, the 50 jets assigned uh, or the 100 or what have you are the assigned jets. If one of them breaks down or is somewhat uh, or unavailable for whatever reason, then because of NORAD's priority, uh, then that jet is immediately replaced, right? So Got it's it. not like you have 50 and then the next day you could have 49 because of maintenance issues. No, you always have the 50, right? And right. in addition to that, uh, there are also uh, basically uh, alert levels or security levels that we go through based on uh, intelligence assessments that kind of gradiate uh, that up or down based on uh, what we see and what we assess. So that allocation can grow or shrink uh, based on the security requirements that we identify. Interesting. And and is that true not just of, of equipment like aircraft that you mentioned, but also of, of staffing? So those staffing levels are maintained even if there's, you know, some people are unavailable or something like that? I mean, maybe the best way to kind of uh, you know illustrate that one a little bit is uh, to talk about some of the support systems that go into NORAD executing its mission, and none more important than uh, U.S. Transport Command, which obviously supplies the the tankers so that we can fly our jets for uh, an extended periods of time and extended ranges. Uh, so U.S. Transport Command doesn't necessarily fall underneath uh, NORAD's command and control, but as a support mechanism we can kind of bring those in for mission support uh, as required. So in that sense, uh, the assets and the personnel grow to meet the mission requirement. Mm. And our, 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 can you give me a, a clear sense of, of the breadth of all of the different types of, of equipment or, um, uh, or different you know, divisions or, or branches of the military that are involved? I mean, does it even extend to, to submarines? Does it extend... You mentioned Coast Guard, Navy involved. Is it? We usually think of it as, you know, radar and aircraft. How how much more does it go beyond that? Well, I think maybe the uh, the biggest component for that would be with the maritime warning mission. The maritime warning mission is essentially, essentially that uh, detection and assessment piece. Uh, it's largely an intelligence sharing function. And it was a mission that was given to us in 2006. Uh, and which kind of flowed from uh, the fallout from 9/11. Uh, 9/11, of course, being a, a pinnacle moment for uh, you know, for our history, uh, certainly. Uh, so it's just coming coming to the terms of what exactly was the terrorist threat at that point in time, and one of the determinations was that an attack from the maritime approaches or internal waterways was a uh, potential avenue of attack. And so, therefore, leveraging NORAD's existing intelligence-sharing relationship between both countries uh, was something that seemed to be a, a good fit uh, for NORAD at that time. So, to kind of dovetail, if I could, come back to your question, uh, <laughs> is uh, does it expand into Navy assets, for example, as for a command and control perspective? No. 
uh, it is essentially just a, an intelligent sharing function. So it's just mm -hmm. a matter of having the information and then knowing where, where and who to share that with. And does, does NORAD, so you, in, there's like a part of it that, that obviously is about that intelligence gathering and surveillance. Where, where, how does that, tell me about how that dovetails into uh, response in terms of uh, uh, deploying aircraft and then also how NORAD coordinates any action that would have to be taken as well. Well, I guess uh, to harken back to the uh, the marginal line World War II, in order to effectively uh, mount a defense, you need to know where to be. Mm -hmm. uh, so in that sense, uh, the detection and assessment piece and the other uh, assets we uh, leverage with other security partners is essentially painting a picture for us on where uh, potential threats uh, may be or what avenues of attack uh, they may take. Uh, and then for us, uh, essentially using that information to be at the right place at the right time to uh, at least show presence and uh, an effective deterrence and mm -hmm. to deny adversaries any potential avenues of attack. And is that basically essentially the first that you're basically the first line of defense, right? Your aircraft, the aircraft that gets scrambled or deployed uh, directly from NORAD uh, are the first ones that would, that would meet any any intruder. Is that accurate? It certainly is. Uh, so defending uh, the homelands between Canada and the United States is our number one priority. And certainly we take great pride in not only being able to respond, but effectively responding and, and denying uh, adversaries avenues of attack. However, you know, there's there's also a lot to explore when you say like as far as being the first response, because nowadays uh, what could be an avenue of attack has certainly grown since uh, uh, since World War II at the very least. And they were talking about uh, cybersecurity threats, uh, uh, other things that, uh, you know, the uh, violent extremist organizations, these type things uh, that uh, certainly expand what uh, national defense uh, has been known to be and what it's become. So NORAD's even involved in the in the cyber side of it. Uh, certainly, we have a number of assets uh, that we uh, exercise uh, basic cybersecurity over, uh, and certainly as an area of interest uh, to ensure that uh, there are critical infrastructure uh, throughout both countries that are able to uh, sustain operations through a cyber attack. Uh, so, in that sense, uh, yes, we're very much interested. But as far as being the guys at the keyboard. Uh, no, not so much, but uh, like I say, uh, homeland security is a much more broad topic of discussion nowadays. Right, right. That makes sense, definitely. So um, one of the things, let's kind of back up for a minute and talk about uh, about the airspace. Um, you mentioned uh, the air defense identification zone, which uh, there's a lot of pilots obviously in the audience here. We see that on charts. Um, uh, tell me a little bit more about what that is, what it means from a private pilot perspective, as well as what it means for you at NORAD uh, versus really intruding into uh, uh, national airspace. So I guess the better, the better way to start with that one is to kind of explain what an air defense identification zone is and what it isn't. Uh, what it isn't is, is uh, sovereign airspace. In other words, uh, sovereign airspace extends about 12 nautical miles past the coast. So uh, anything within that 12 nautical miles is sovereign territory, and that's basically uh, you know, a must-defend zone as far as like, you do not let anybody encroach on, on that uh, imaginary line, as it were. Mm -hmm. Now, an air defense identification zone extends up to 200 nautical miles past that. 
So, and that is an essentially an imaginary line which extends into international airspace that essentially triggers uh, a response uh, militarily. So for mm -hmm. us, uh, if we see that a track of interest of unknown origin or intent uh, transits the air dimension identification zone line, then that triggers us to kind of, okay, okay, we need to pay attention to that now and track its progress to kind of see where it's going. And then we execute an identification process to kind of figure out what it is. Uh, the uh, One of the last stages of the identification process is visual identification. And that's effectively sending up a jet fighter to kind of go up, take a look, see what it is, get eyes on, and uh, and then effectively uh, show a presence and uh, control the airspace. So that's the aerospace control component of the mission. As, and so basically you're you're looking at, at that and I assume that you have escalating responses as it gets closer and closer to sovereign airspace then. Yeah, so if in the event that that track of interest is uh, say a, a derelict airliner, then it's just a matter of reconnecting with air traffic control to ensure that uh, it uh, follows along its you know, designated flight plan or what have you. Mm -hmm. uh, in the event of a, say a foreign military aircraft, uh, then essentially, yes. Uh, so in that case, and we uh, come up along its side as far as the internet inter intercept procedure goes, and then uh, basically maintain presence on that, uh, that aircraft's wing, for the duration that it's in the air defense identification zone. Got it. So uh, I assume that means then that that you're always tracking all commercial and private aircraft and and know where they're supposed to be if they are within the the uh, the ADIS. Yeah, not only within the ADIS, also within uh, Canadian and U.S. airspace as well. And that was a big change from 9/11. Uh, obviously, uh, at that time. Uh, the concept of uh, an attack originating from within uh, the country was, uh, uh, you know, certainly not at the forefront of uh, you know defense's mind at the time. However, you know uh, that folly was proven, uh, you know, pretty quick. So the big change from that, however, uh, was that uh, when NORAD was looking at uh, what national defense is, it was no more simply just looking out for what may enter uh, from its airspace approaches, but also what could originate from within. And that had grown into uh, defense relationships with organizations and such as Transport Canada, uh, the FAA, uh, the U.S. Secret Service, among a plethora of others. So, so are you saying then in that case that things like the the freeze zones and the and the other T, uh, uh, TFRs that are, or permanent TFRs around areas like Washington D.C. and things like that, when when a when an aircraft strays uh, in those areas, that's also part of what NORAD's looking at. Absolutely. Uh, as a matter of fact, to kind of you know talk through an example of how one of those things could stand up. Uh, say if the uh, the president was moving from one location to another, uh, the Secret Service would ask uh, the FAA to establish uh, a temporary flight restriction uh, over that zone, and then uh, NORAD, in effect, becomes the enforcer of that TFR. So if anything enters the TFR, uh, either it doesn't have a designated flight plan, did not enter with... Uh, uh, prior concurrence, not in, uh, communications with air traffic control. Uh, so the FAA goes through a host of uh, methods as well to kind of execute its identification process to get the aircraft to comply in the event that uh, the uh, aircraft 
transits through the TFR and is still not compliant, then we have our uh, fighter aircraft ready, on alert, and in a position to respond to any potential uh, threat. Typically, not a threat. Uh, typically, as folks basically fly in VFR, uh, not squawking a code, uh, not on guard, that type thing, and then all of a sudden they get an, an aircraft on their wing and like, what the, right. he the hell's going on? Uh, and then then things click in and then they pay attention and then they can become compliant. So that's 99.9% .9 of the, the scenarios. Yes. And then they have a very, very uncomfortable meeting. <laughs> uh, not always, but uh, if, uh, if they're belligerent uh, in their airspace procedures, then, then possibly. But that, I'll let the Secret Service speak to that. Right. But I didn't realize that's really fascinating that it's actually NORAD that's, that, that is coordinating those intercepts uh, that happen when you hear about uh, an intercept happening in, in any type of a, of a TFR. Yeah, absolutely. We have a guy from uh, the FAA who sits on our operations floor. And uh, we're working to paint that uh, that operating picture each and every time one of those occur. And uh, it's us that's working with, say, the Air National Guard or the U.S. Coast Guard to execute a response. Mm -hmm. So let, let's look outward again and um, and talk a little bit. Uh, my understanding is that, uh, especially since our, our neighbor uh, Russia is, is, is the number one in terms of that region and, and military power, um, that to the north and west, uh, there have been uh, a fair number of incursions actually that happen in airspace. What are they actually called and, and what's actually been happening in that regard? So I guess uh, I guess a little bit of a history component to it, I guess. Um, so for NORAD, the Russian military aviation intercepts uh, hit a pretty stagnant point uh, past the Cold War, obviously. But uh, Russia started resuming them back in 2007. Uh, since 2007, uh, we've had about uh, an average of about six to seven intercepts per year, uh, calendar year that is. Uh, and over that period, it's ranged as low as zero in a year and as high as 15. Uh, this year, uh, we've conducted 14 intercepts of Russian military aircraft entering wow. in the uh, the ADIS, and uh, you know all those intercepts have been safe and professional uh, from a from a, a coordination standpoint, or not a coordination, but from a from an execution standpoint. Mm -hmm. uh, but uh, still, uh, 14 is not far from 15, which is the uh, the all-time high since 2007. And are uh, do those? I mean, it seems from the dates that you're throwing out that that those seem to tie pretty closely to world events happening. Well, the uh, certainly the, a number of them uh, occur in circumstances that uh, are not totally unforeseen. Uh, mm -hmm. For example, we had a number of intercepts which occurred uh, while the Navy was conducting its ISEX exercise uh, up the north of Alaska. So uh, essentially they had a nuclear submarine uh, north of Alaska where they had a camp to support the exercise uh, on an ice flow, actually. Mm -hmm. uh, and then they had uh, uh, a very publicized uh, you know, submarine operation in that area. So as you can imagine, uh, to, <laughs> to see a a maritime patrol aircraft from the Russian side come in to investigate the area, not totally an unforeseen event. Good, good uh, chance to try to test out their submarine tracking capabilities. Well, certainly an opportunity. Uh, additionally, actually, just there in about, I think it was August, August, September timeframe, they were conducting their uh, 
a Navy exercise off the coast of Alaska. Uh, so prior to that exercise uh, actually occurring, and by the coast of Alaska, I mean like you know like a couple hundred miles off, so it's not like just off the shore. But uh, regardless, so they wanted to conduct a massive uh, naval exercise there. So, I mean, if you were going to run a Navy exercise close to, uh, you know, another nation's shores uh, to, to sweep that area and, and make sure it's clean is, again, just, you know, a regular military protocol that you would take. So to see, again, maritime patrol aircraft prior to that exercise is, again, uh, not an unforeseen event. And are those exercises even by the Russians when you talk about like a like a a, a, a naval one? Are they done outside or inside the ADIS? Uh, the this particular, I mean, okay, you talking about the naval exercise itself? I'm talking about like when the Russians actually do uh, do their own actions, not the intercepts, but like you said, when they're planning their own like naval exercises or something, do they stay in? I'm not in inter truly international waters, or do they also uh, violate uh, the ADES? Well, I mean, you're talking about two different domains, so the, the two don't really translate that well. Okay. But uh, were they in international waters? Absolutely, yes. Okay. So tell me a little bit about how, well, first of all, you said they're, they're, they're pretty high. We're almost at an all-time high as far as how many have happened in 2020 uh, and how many intercepts you've had to do during that. Um, it, it, how, do you think the ISACs or, or are they probing having to do with COVID perhaps and our readiness? Well, I mean, I, I'm sure that uh, every time they execute these operations, they're looking to kind of, num num number one, uh, ensure that their uh, pilots, you know, maintain and uh, develop those proficiencies. And at the same time, uh, you, know, you know, investigate or check you know, our readiness and see where, where we're positioned to respond. Mm -hmm. uh, so, uh, and, and again, this has been uh, going on for many decades now. Maybe some folks in your audience even are well aware of the regular occurrences that these things would uh, take place. Uh, however, the big difference, of course, is that today we're, we're talking about it in the open uh, as the day it happens, whereas back in the day, uh, mom was the word. Right. Well, uh, and you'd mentioned to me earlier that uh, things have kind of changed in terms of what you can talk about having to do with this. Yeah, so uh, in the past, we were uh, what we call response to query, uh, so reactive to any queries that came with regards to Russian military aviation uh, activity. But in 2018, uh, the command made uh, a, a 180 uh, to be more proactive, to communicate uh, what exactly we're doing on a day-to-day -day basis to protect both Canada and the United States. And, and that stands largely from uh, a change with the, uh, the national defense strategy and the national military strategy, which identify uh, you know, Russia as a, uh, as a competitor in a, in a growing uh, global competitive environment, and China certainly on the, on the cusp of that and certainly being considered a future threat. Do uh, do you also have any uh, have have had any issues? Is it always uh, through uh, with Russia, or has that been an issue militarily from China as well? Well, the, the Russia is the uh, the here and now, mm -hmm. uh, but uh, things with regards to China and their activities, specifically in the Arctic and their interest there, uh, and their growing uh, you know uh, military power. Uh, and how they're choosing to exercise that power 
uh, within their own region now mm-hmm. uh, is certainly an area of concern. Uh, so, and then the question is then, uh, how do they choose to employ that when their economic and military power uh, expand, uh, say, beyond their region? Uh, so right. that is something that uh, the United States government is currently looking at and uh, what the uh, potential areas to uh, look at there. Um, mm-hmm. But as of right now, it's certainly seen that uh, you know China is a competitor and they're looking to keep it at the competitor uh, area. Uh, certainly China is looking to exercise uh, into its interest, uh, but at the same time, uh, we're looking at it from a national defense perspective. Right. I think, you know, one of the things that's interesting is there's certainly been a lot written about how there, there's, there's so much general news focus in terms of things like the Middle East and other areas as being the highest areas of kind of conflict, whether it be open or whether it just be kind of brewing conflict, whereas the, where it's really happening, kind of the front lines, is the Arctic. Yeah, I mean, the, the Arctic is uh, has always been, for that matter, a strategic area of importance. Uh, however, uh, climate change and the, the growing uh, sea traffic in that area and, uh, you know, other developments in uh, military technologies uh, make it, uh, again, another avenue of, of approach. Mm-hmm. Uh, where it becomes even more important uh, and maybe just kind of a branch to one of our earlier discussions with regards to the the, the previous threat and the, what we're looking at currently is, uh, if I can use an analogy of archers and arrows, um, archers being the aircraft themselves or the platforms and the arrows being the munitions they launch. Uh, so in the past, uh, an archer was tied to its arrow. So in other words, uh, the range from which the arrow would fall from the archer was minuscule for gravity bombs, obviously. Mm-hmm. Uh, where we're at right now with the development of cruise missiles and hypersonic cruise missiles specifically, uh, the archer has a much more extended range where the arrow can hit us long before uh, we would, using our older technologies, be able to detect them. Right. So, and then from that becomes the importance of not only uh, extending our uh, surveillance range or aerospace warning mission capabilities into the Arctic, uh, but also our tracking abilities, because once things fly at uh, 10 times the speed of sound, they're pretty hard to detect. Yeah. And, and, and I mean, d- even with detection, we're talking, you've been talking about things like intercepts, uh, about, you know, first, first lines of, of kind of defense, but that escalation at speeds like that through the entire system to a response. Uh, how how in the world is something like that coordinated when when you're dealing with that those short timeframes to go all the way from how do you coordinate from all the way from detection to a response, uh, even if it's response all the way from you know wherever it has to come from White House decision. Yeah. So. Uh... I'll illustrate your point actually a little bit. Uh, some folks may be aware of uh, somewhat infamous stories with regards to uh, you know occurrences at uh, NORAD or the the Russian equivalent of NORAD uh, back during the Cold War, where there were detection uh, apparent detections of uh, you know military attack on one country and it kind of begged a response back from the other. Uh, both uh, situations like that, however, that you know, I'm tracking uh, just in my head right now, 
were allayed because folks had the time to kind of take a look at it, assess it, make the determination, and then essentially not, uh, you know, re not make take actions that would result in in nuclear war or being in a position to advise their respective governments uh, of a of a of a potential attack and then have them uh, you know move forward with that uh, to uh, come back to you, what you just said once you're dealing with munitions at uh, again moving at that speed at that rate then uh, it certainly decreases the amount of assessment and decision time. Uh, that you have because you know as everyone can appreciate the military doesn't act on its own uh, NORAD as a binational organization uh, is uh, executing its aerospace warning and aerospace control missions in that respect mm -hmm. to advise its leadership its political leadership on what the situation is and then offer recommendations for a military response uh, once you've taken away all that time for that dialogue and for that decision-making processes, then it certainly comp compresses your need to respond. Does that mean that some of the responses have to be essentially pre-programmed or canned responses because there's no time that, that if certain things happen, there's just certain other things that have to happen? Well, and that's, and we're kind of branching into, uh, you know, technology development that, uh, uh, all of the services are looking at, uh, particularly the Air Force, uh, whether it's uh, you know uh, machine learning, joint all-domain command and control, uh, these type uh, systems that can kind of collaborate and bring together plat uh, sensors and platforms and intelligence uh, gathering systems uh, together, so they can all feed into one another and uh, provide uh, you know joint all-domain awareness. Uh, but the, the core component there is getting them all integrated so they can talk to one another. Another component to that is uh, uh, machine learning. Uh, so uh, you, you've, there are lots of commercial uh, items that kind of uh, exercise this a little bit, uh, but the military is looking to incorporate it uh, from the aspect of uh, making, uh, basically making observations and basically being able to be in a position to make predictions based on uh, repetitive observations and then make deductions based on that. Uh, to quote uh, one of the previous commanders here, uh, it, it was kind of uh, the equivalent of uh, keeping, you know, the, the airman or the military person, uh, you know, in the loop on decisions or on the loop in decisions. Mm. So it, as opposed to like being part of that, that OODA loop process is basically being the overarching piece that would see it all take place and then you know basically uh, take the assessments piece out and then be able to move forward with it so again it all comes to the importance of uh, building that awareness being able to assess the information you're getting out of that and then being able to uh, process it in a way that comes out with actionable uh, you know information and and even with with aircraft uh, as opposed to hypersonic missiles uh, is there time when you have something that isn't going to turn, uh, is there time to go through an approval process or do you have to go through protocols or fall back on something that says something actually reaches sovereign airspace, we actually shoot? Uh, or this, does someone... This is the military. There are always protocols. Mm -hmm. But uh, to, to, get, to get more to your point, uh, more to your question, uh, is that, uh, again, the military serves the government. Uh, and we serve it in a way that ensures its national defense. Uh, 
So as far as bringing all those pieces together to make sure that we're able to do that, uh, obviously it's going to need to incorporate uh, uh, the political leaders, uh, you know, exercise uh, control in that aspect. Excellent. That makes a lot of sense. Let's talk for a step back for a minute, back to the uh, the intercepts. I know a lot of pilots are interested in the concept of this. Um, so these, as this has happened, as you mentioned, 14 times already in 2020. Um, and when this happens, as, as you said, it's been going on for decades. Uh, are there, is there gentlemen's agreement? Is, is there certain protocols? How do these happen in a way that keep them essentially uh, low risk or as low risk as can be possible as opposed to something that so we can you can does each side kind of know what's out really out of the norm and something's got to change well i guess i'll start with uh saying that or reinforcing that it has happened uh in recent history uh for about uh, 13 years now so there's a certain level of uh expectations and uh, protocols if you will uh, yeah, I, I guess for lack of a better term, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Yeah, it escapes me right now. But uh, essentially, just you know, unexpected you know uh, modes of behavior uh, through that that have been established again, you know, through uh, reinforced behaviors over 13 years. Uh, so to say that right now, like like today, if an intercept occurred, uh, you know. Essentially, the, the aircraft would fly up, you know, uh, one of our jet fighters would go on the wing and, uh, you know, essentially we would maintain uh, custody of the aircraft as it, you know, while it maintained within the 80s. Mm -hmm. uh, now, in that circumstance, uh, typically uh, communications back and forth between an aircraft uh, are really not. Uh, not the norm. It's not to be expected. Let's just put it that way. Uh, again, because 13 years of reinforced behavior. Uh, however, uh, in the event that uh, things did occur, that uh, communications were required, uh, then we have international agreements between us and the Russians specific, specifically to say that uh, you know, we can move to particular like uh, radio frequencies and have code words back and forth that communicate core information and what would be core information. Um, that would be something to the effect of if an aircraft was flying too close to sovereign airspace, so again, that's that 12 nautical mile uh, extension off the coast, uh, if uh, four military aircraft had encroached on actual sovereign airspace, uh, then that would constitute uh, a completely different military response than an mm -hmm. ADIS escort. Okay, and so they're they're they have ways of communicating between adversaries. If need yes. Be. Yeah. Absolutely. Again, uh, 13 years of reinforced behavior. Uh, there are just expected norms. Uh, mm -hmm. In the event that uh, anyone breaks from a norm, then we certainly have those communication lines available. But uh, again, for the last 13 years, uh, all those intercepts have been safe and professional. Yeah. Now we have some pictures that you had sent. One is is showing. Uh, uh, this is uh, you had you'd said uh, which type of Russian bomber? Yeah, it's a Tu-95 uh, Russian Bear bomber. They've been flying that one for a while. Uh, and in the foreground, you see there an F-22 out of Alaska, and uh, CF-18s uh, from the Royal Canadian Air Force. And there's a there's an uh, older version. looks looks like <laughs> looks like our planes have changed a lot, but theirs haven't. <laughs> 
that would be a fair statement. <laughs> are these are these really the that these these bears are still the same planes that they're flying uh, in in the intercepts that we're doing? Yes and no. Uh, in in the sense that uh, airframe, yes. Uh, however, as you can imagine, much like uh, we do in our military. Uh, if we have uh, older equipment, then uh, we tend to upgrade it with uh, systems and to kind of make it more uh, relevant in the current military environment. Uh, and they've done similar type things, but uh, to answer your question, yes, that is uh, the same airframe. Uh, we do not currently fly the Voodoo. Right. I, I wouldn't imagine. Um, let's... Uh... Let's go back a, a little bit because I'd like to go through some of the pictures that you sent to be able to understand a little bit about it. Um, uh, and now, of course, as we stated earlier, this is the, the entrance, the Cheyenne Mountain Complex. Now, this is no longer the primary um, NORAD uh, headquarters, or is that true? Yeah, so after two, after the year 2000, I think it was about 2003 or 2006, you have to correct me on that one. But uh, essentially, we moved the primary headquarters out of Cheyenne Mountain down to Peterson Air Force Base. And hopefully you show that picture later. It's a beautiful building. I do. But, I have uh, that. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, yeah, essentially, NORAD as an organization simply outgrew uh, basically what was available at Cheyenne Mountain. And as you can imagine, it's very difficult to stretch your elbows inside a mountain. So. <laughs> So they decided to kind of move uh, the office spaces down to Peterson Air Force Base. But we still do ma maintain an alternate uh, command center at Cheyenne Mountain, uh, which is essentially our uh, one of the places we go to like uh, during an exercise or uh, you know, when like things like, say, for COVID, for example, where we maintain a crew there. Uh, that are able to exercise very stringent COVID protocols to ensure that they're able to execute the, the mission uh, no matter what. So it's it's still uh, it's still active and it is still able to be activated uh, uh, with all the things that that make it such a such an amazing kind of facility. Yep, absolutely, and certainly we exercise uh, you know uh, using that space on a regular basis because, as you can imagine. Uh, not only just from a military perspective, but also if just sitting at home, uh, you have systems and uh, programs at home that require regular updates, you know, we're no different. So we'll need to go in and uh, basically ensure that the everything that's there runs well and effective so that when we do need it, it's there. Right. And and these pictures show that uh, this, it's, it really is an unbelievable facility, everything being on springs and earthquake-proof, bomb-proof, uh, I mean... Have you been all through it, I assume? Yes, uh, it is uh, certainly uh, an impressive building. Uh, terrific uh, structure as far as what they're able to do there in in the mountain. And uh, it's kind of uh, kind of incredible in the fact that when you just you're just walking down uh, rock tunnels and then when you go down enough turns, you effectively find this big steel can on springs. Uh, <laughs> at the tail end of one of the tunnels. And then when you go in, it's just a, a maze of indiscernible white uh, hallways. <laughs> a good, easy place to get lost. <laughs> Very easy. Yeah, you need to know exactly where you're going. And and I understand that it, it's got lakes in, in there, both for uh, storage of, of fuel, storage of water, uh, like everything. 
Yeah, so there are lots of stores in there to sustain uh, the people in there to conduct the operations for a very extended period of time. And yes, uh, by hook or by crook, we actually have uh, uh, fresh water supply in there as well, courtesy of the mountain itself. Mm. And uh, uh, so we'll, we'll rifle through some of these pictures for continuing the, um, that this is, uh, looks like it's from a while ago, one of the uh, command and control. So yeah, that's a command and control center from uh, Int Air Force Base, which is the predecessor to Peterson Air Force Base here. Uh, so that would have been uh, prior to them actually moving into the mountain. Ah, okay. And then we talked about the intercept. Um, can you tell me a little bit about the uh, the defense uh, early warning line? So those are the radars that we established on uh, the planet Hoth. Uh, those <laughs> those who follow Star Wars may be a little bit more familiar with what I'm talking about. But uh, yeah, it looks like it. It looks like that's where they filmed it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, exactly. So, so that was uh, when I talked at the, the top of the program with regards to the distant early warning line. So that, that essentially uh, that radar system to detect and monitor any potential uh, Arctic uh, avenue of approach for potential uh, Soviet bombers in that, in that time. Uh, so that was the, uh, the beginning of uh, what would now become the North Warning System today, mm -hmm. uh, which was updated in, uh, you know, the mid eighties ish. Got it. Um, looks like that's not a duty that someone would necessarily want to pull to, uh, to you, you gotta like the cold. Well, most of the, uh, satellites today are not manned. Um, so there, you know, all the, uh, maintenance and upgrades are done, uh, on a schedule basis. However, uh, Alaska does maintain some, uh, manned radar stations still, and it takes a special breed of person to to go in and conduct a mission, but we're very happy they're there to do it. Yeah, absolutely. So here is your new building. Yeah, it's a gorgeous building. That's that's where I work. Excellent. And this is located where? So that's at Peterson Air Force Base in Colorado Springs, Colorado. So that's building two, building two to me. Building two, and and yeah. of course showing the flags of, of both countries and the state. Mm -hmm. um, so uh, let's uh, uh, talk for uh, a minute about um, just a couple other things that have come up and some questions that have come in, in for people. One thing, just randomly, do, do obviously we're all taught as pilots, you know, you're, you've got a transponder or you've got ADSB in both and you're, you're squawking a code. Do, do uh, a military aircraft have anything similar when they are uh, infringing on, our, uh, on the ADIS? Well, certainly they, uh, they, they emit a, a signal uh, not doing so uh, certainly calls into question their intent. And again, it goes back to that regular uh, normal behaviors component to it, right? Uh, mm -hmm. So if, if, you're, if you're approaching uh, someone's doorway and you're making yourself known, then at least that is within the realm of normal behavior for someone uh, looking outside the door or their window. Uh, if someone is skulking around trees and brushes trying to get to the back of your house, uh, mm -hmm. completely different uh, assessment and approach for that one. So, And, and when you talk about uh, obviously deploying uh, um, intercept and things like that, does NORAD also control uh, ICBMs and things along those lines? 
No. Uh, so the, the uh, Missile Defense Agency and uh, some others uh, are more involved in that aspect of things. We're just concerned with the aerospace warning component of it. So that is the detection uh, of any potential ICBM launches and then determining whether they're a potential threat to Canada or the United States. Got it. And then uh, lastly on this, before we go in, of course, to the uh, your Santa mission, um, uh, you mentioned COVID, and of course, you know, readiness is, is important. What, how, what kind of procedures exist to uh, to protect the military, to protect NORAD, uh, and being able to be at, at the ready at all times uh, uh, with uh, with COVID? So the core component there is uh, a concept, basically, continuity of operations. Uh, and in layman's terms, that basically means no matter what happens, you are able to execute your assigned missions. And for us, again, that's going back to the airspace warning component, the detection of uh, any potential airspace uh, threats, aerospace control, which is essentially just dealing with those threats, and then maritime warning, which is, again, the assessment or the detection of any potential uh, threats originating from uh, you know, maritime approaches or internal waterways. So no matter what, we need to be able to do that 24-7, 365. If a big rock falls out of the sky, we still need to do that. Uh, so coming back to the COVID piece, uh, obviously it has had a major impact on operations everywhere. Uh, so for us, uh, again, coming back to the Cheyenne Mountain piece, is that uh, it's our, uh, our clean state, if you will, of a regular rotations of operational personnel who are able to execute all of those missions in the event that everything else uh, goes to pot. Uh, so we have most of the staff in building two, uh, but we also have a rotating staff in Cheyenne Mountain, which is effectively broken down into folks on, uh, on duty, Mm-hmm. Uh, folks at home uh, with very stringent protocols on what they can and cannot do, and then folks in isolation. So that they just rotate through uh, on a regular basis to ensure that they're perfectly clean by the time they get to the mountain. And when they get out, uh, then they're uh, basically have to follow strict protocols to ensure their protection. But at the same time, as they transition into the mountain, uh, they're in an isolation period to, so that we have a, a really good window on when we can detect whether they have any COVID symptoms or not. That makes a lot of sense. So basically three stages, you know, home isolation and active duty. Mm-hmm. Right. That definitely. Now you did mention, of course, you know, something falling, rock falling out of the sky. Where, how does, to what extent does, does NORAD's mission extend spacebound? bound? <laughs> uh, so we have space command and space force and a, and a plethora of other things that uh, execute the more space, uh, you know, threat component of it, I guess you could say, and the space defense uh, component. Uh, for our standpoint, uh, we leverage their assets and what they do to support our aerospace warning mission. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we have the, the radars, whatnot, the kind of uh, on the ground, that kind of detect out to a range uh, along the periphery. We uh, leverage with uh, Transport Canada and FAA for uh, air surveillance internally to both Canada and the United States. And then when we talk about uh, space surveillance, then uh, we certainly leverage uh, the information that uh, Space Command, Space Force, and others provide to help support our assessment and the detection of threats to Canada and the United States. Got it. That makes a lot of sense. So let's transition to your most pressing mission uh, over the next few days. 
and that's uh, NORAD's Santa tracking. And um, now, now this started, tell me about this gentleman. Colonel Harry Shaup. Yeah, so uh, the, the entire thing, I mean, as you can imagine, uh, a military organization did not set its sights on tracking Santa from the get-go. <laughs> but but uh, by happenstance, uh, a local ad here in Colorado Springs uh, put a promotion to call Santa. So it tried to encourage kids to call into a particular number to talk to St. Nick and discuss their wish list, uh, which by all accounts, I mean, I, I'm sure it was a great promotional idea. The only problem with it is the fact that the number they printed on the ad was not to Santa. It was actually to the Continental uh, Airspace Defense Command's Operations Center. <laughs> this is so, a true story. Yeah, no, absolutely. I, I can't make this up. But uh, so CONAD, Continental Air, Continental, Air, eh, can't say it now, Continental Airspace Defense Command, was the predecessor to NORAD. So basically in 1955, the Conan Operations Center was inundated with children's calls looking to talk to Santa on December 24th. Uh, Colonel Harry Schaup uh, was the uh, person on duty that night who, you know, as you can imagine, was 1955, uh, not exactly uh, looking to talk about Santa Claus at the time, more concerned about the potential Soviet threat, uh, all of a sudden became uh, Santa's tracker for that night. Uh, so he uh, assured the children who were calling in that, uh, you know, we would uh, follow along with Santa's progress and, you know, and he would make it safely to their homes. And then he uh, instructed the rest of the crew to do the exact same. So that is what began uh, the NORAD track Santa history right now, which we've been following uh, since NORAD was established in 1958 and have been carrying it on now for 65 years. Wow. And this shows your team. Yeah, so that is what the uh, the NORAD Track Santa Operations Center typically looks like. That is a pre-COVID example of what the the call center looks like. So folks would call in one eight seven seven hi NORAD and get one of these fine folks on the phone. Uh, we get about fifteen hundred volunteers each year, uh, not only within the military but the local community, the state community. And even from around the the country, actually, come in uh, and support uh, that effort. So they're there not just military personnel. Nope, not at all, not at all. Uh, as a matter of fact, because uh, they I look like I... elves, I'm just saying. <laughs> uh, we we certainly don't say the you know the, when they take calls to identify yourself as an elf, but uh, <laughs> as you can clearly see. Uh, Folks show up in a festive mood, and certainly on December 24th, if you're not in a festive mood, uh, there's something wrong with you. Uh, but uh, if regardless, they, they show up and they're dressed for the part, and they have that mindset. Uh, they're going to talk to the kids for uh, – we have two-hour shifts in the past anyway for that. And uh, and it's a, it's a hoot of a time, as you can imagine, talking to oh a whole God. bunch of kids – from How all wonderful. over the world. Like, where do I sign up? Can you do it remotely? <laughs> uh, so the COVID changed this year, obviously. Uh, because of COVID, we can't do that setup. Uh, so we've had to drastically reduce the number of folks in the call center. However, uh, much like everything else uh, that we do, uh, leveraging technology to, to, to 
fill in the gaps for the changes we have to make. Mm-hmm. Uh, so some of that is uh, something as simple as cell phones that kind of tie into the, uh, the overall operation center, as well as uh, other remote features that we have uh, with other partnerships with uh, corporations that kind of lean in and make, right. to, me, to, make, to be honest with you, make the entire thing possible. Right. Uh, as you can imagine, we're the military. We don't run a call center. We're, we're the military. We don't run, uh, you know, tracking Santa websites. Uh, we're the military. We don't do, you know, these things. We don't develop apps to track Santa. Uh, it all of that is made possible by, by made possible by teams at Microsoft, uh, AGI, Amazon, and a plethora of others that lean in and provide not only the expertise but the people and uh, the resources to make this program possible each and every year wow that's that's impressive and of course as you as you saw with their other one you ever obviously scrambled jets to to follow santa along his route and escort him uh yes (laughs) (laughs) and uh and and the tracker i just want to point out to anyone especially if you've got kids you got grandkids um uh it's uh uh it, it's got some some really interesting things. I've got someone asking what Santa squawks. Is there a special code with that? Uh, Santa, again, uh, it follows that uh, very routine behavior that we can expect each and every year. <laughs> uh, so we pick them up on, on radar, and then, of course, we go through our identification process as per normal, like we do with every other track of interest, uh, which eventually culminates in a visual identification or an intercept uh, so leveraging radar to kind of find our way through. And I was talking to a pilot earlier today, just kind of, you know, explain to me what that intercept process would look like. Uh, so leveraging radars and feeding through the command and control uh, network and then uh, having uh, E3 support as well to get a vector in on where Santa could be. But uh, eventually Rudolph's red nose is a dead giveaway each and every time. <laughs> Excellent. And so I certainly want to point out to everybody, uh, you know, I I did go to NORADSanta.org and and of course, check that out. I was, I was really impressed. Not only does it have all these things that are very kind of uh, kid oriented on there, but it has a pretty impressive amount of information about NORAD's mission and, uh, and, and, you know, the assets and what it does and why you're here. It's a really good educational and, and kind of like, marketing piece for what for norad yeah cer- certainly i mean uh we like we're very proud of what we do and uh we'll talk about what we do uh so understand that people uh come for santa but uh stick around find out uh, how exactly we go about doing that in addition to that actually if you haven't already gotten there there's also an arcade section in there an advent arcade calendar if you will release one game every day up until the 24th wow uh, which are way more challenging uh, than you would think they'd be, and certainly <laughs> more challenging they extend beyond my gaming skills. I'll tell you that. Yeah, I'm wondering whether that means that like you or I are very challenged by it, but the average eight-year-old is somehow not. <laughs> yeah, probably not. Yeah, probably not. Excellent. Well, uh, Major Hillier, I just want to thank you so, so much for taking time out of your day, uh, um, out of your evening, and of course, out of your very, very important mission at the North American Aerospace Defense Command. Uh, I do appreciate it and and everything that you do for this country. 
Um, uh, we are all safe because of individuals like yourself and, and the entire organization. And of course, on top of that, everything that you do um, with the uh, helping uh, children uh, be able to celebrate it with uh, the uh, uh, Santa Tracker and everything goes along with that. So again, thank you so, so much for joining us this evening here on Social Flight Live. You know, thank you. Thank you for having me and thank you for the support. Greatly appreciate it. Absolutely. And I just like to remind everyone else that's out there that we will be back next Tuesday and every Tuesday here at 8 p.m. Eastern time on Social Flight Live. Um, next Tuesday on December 29th, Rod Machado returns to join us. We're followed on January 5th by Mark and Mike Patey. That will be a really fun show. On the 12th, Boris Popoff, inventor of the whole aircraft parachute used on all Cirruses and so many other aircraft will be here. And then just more and more shows coming. Very, very fun things to come with. So again, um, thank you so much to Major Cameron Hillier from the North American Aerospace Defense Command. Uh, thank you so much. I wish you all blue skies. Good night.